0: Overture. A very small, rather frail child is escorted into a pub in Chatham, in Kent, by a plump, vivacious man. The man, exchanging affable words with the population of the pub, who all know him well, places his child on a table and enjoins him to recite. Though afflicted with a slight lisp, which he will never entirely lose, the child gives a startlingly vivacious rendition of that noted improving lyric, The Sluggard, one of the divine songs for children from the prolific pen of the Reverend Dr. Isaac Watts. Tis the voice of the sluggard, I heard him complain, You have waked me too soon, I'm a slumber again. As the door on its hinges, so he on his bed, Turns his sides, and his shoulders, and his heavy head. A little more sleep, and a little more slumber. Thus he wastes half his days, and his hours without number and when he gets up, he sits folding his hands, or walks about, sauntering or trifling, he stands. I made him a visit, still hoping to find he had took better care for improving his mind. He told me his dreams, talked of eating and drinking, but he scarce reads his Bible, and never loves thinking. Said I then to my heart, here's a lesson for me, that man's but a picture of what I might be. But thanks to my friend's for their care in my breeding, who taught me betimes to love working and reading. The rendition was a great success. The little boy used to give it to great effect, and with such actions and such attitudes, said the family maid, Mary. It was a modest debut for the greatest literary entertainer of all time, But the seven-year-old Charles Dickens obviously took the moral of the poem to heart. No human being on the face of the earth ever filled his waking moments to better effect than he, cramming his fifty-eight years with an astonishing variety of performances in a multiplicity of arenas. Chapter One Paradise Dickens's arrival in the world was announced with a flourish in the Portsmouth newspapers on Monday, the 10th of February, 1812. Births. On Friday, at Mile End Terrace, the lady of John Dickens, Esquire, a son. The phrase has a certain gallantry about it, archaic even for the time, an almost chivalric floridity, entirely characteristic of John Dickens. He was born in 1785 in Crewe House in London and grew up in Crewe Hall, the stately Jacobean mansion in Cheshire in which his father William had been the butler. William died before John was born, but his widow Elizabeth remained housekeeper, a pivotal figure in the running of the Crewe family's various splendid and extensive establishments. Crewe Hall was a very grand household and a hotbed of whiggish political activity, Among the regular guests were the politicians Charles James Fox, George Canning and Edmund Burke, the playwright Richard Brinsley Sheridan, and the painters Joshua Reynolds and Thomas Lawrence, some of the greatest men of the age. As a boy and a youth, John Dickens would inevitably have been involved in his mother's work, becoming a player, if only in a bit part, in the highly theatrical enterprise of running a great house, a carefully staged performance— with sharply defined spheres of backstage and onstage, rigidly maintained roles, and a script to be departed from only in exceptional circumstances. Certainly John Dickens emerged from that world with an orotundity, above all an elaborate sense of language, that his boy Charles relished and reproduced ever after, affectionately quoting him almost to the last, as my poor father would say. John seems not to have had an official job, till 1807, when, at the relatively late age of 19, he'd gone to work as an extra clerk in the Navy pay office in Somerset House, off the Strand in London. Patronage was the usual route to civil service appointments, and it seems very likely that John Dickens's had been arranged by no less a figure than the high-flying treasurer to the Navy, John Crew's political associate, George Canning, soon to be Foreign Secretary and then, briefly, Prime Minister. At any rate, the following year, the now 20-year-old extra clerk was thought presentable enough to be chosen to accompany Sheridan's wife on a coach ride from Portsmouth to London, the ever-versatile dramatist his theatrical career long behind him, then being receiver of the Duchy of Cornwall. The fact that John was from Crewe Hall would have naturally encouraged the Sheridans' confidence in him. The school for scandal is dedicated to Mrs Crewe, whose housekeeper, John's mother Elizabeth, would have been well known to Mrs Sheridan. She was a formidable figure, this Elizabeth Dickens, with a lifetime of service in great houses. Before her marriage, she had been Lady Blandford's maid at Grosvenor House. She was responsible for the destinies of her large staff, answerable directly to Mr. and Mrs. Crewe. But off duty, she had a particular gift for storytelling, and her employer's children would seek her out in the housekeeper's room, sitting spellbound at her feet as she spun her yarns. Inimitable! was the word that Lady Houghton, one of those children, used of Elizabeth Dickens a lifetime later, an adjective that would immortally attach itself to her grandson. Meanwhile, her son John had fallen in love with Elizabeth Barrow, whose brother Thomas was his colleague. Their father, Charles Barrow, was John's superior in the Navy pay office, rejoicing in the magnificent title of Chief Conductor of Moneys in Towns or at least he did until he was discovered conducting large sums of government monies into his own pocket, at which point he fled the country, later creeping back to the Isle of Man where he ended his days. Dodgy money thus makes an appearance very early on in Dickens's saga. Money, in one form or another, always featured prominently and tiresomely in his life.